stand, let's, let's just have a word of prayer before we start. Father, we thank you that you're here with us. Lord, we thank you that everything that we need <clears throat> is in you. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding now as we turn to your word. Lord, we ask that you'll anoint me as I speak and that everyone here as, as they listen. And we pray, Lord, that we really will be given an understanding that goes deep into our hearts. Lord, that your word can go beyond simply being something we know to be true, but Lord, that you'll make it our experience. So, Father, we pray that you'll just give us a great awareness of your presence now and that you'll bless us because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, go for your Christian life manuals. By the way, that's the Bible. Right? And uh, be finding <coughs> Galatians and chapter 5. Galatians and chapter 5. Now, we, we come tonight in the, uh, to, to, in fact, the last talk in this series that we've been doing about the gifts of the Spirit and about fellowship and about love. And what we're going to end with tonight, <coughs> and we have to really, is we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, <coughs> we started off with doing the gifts of the Spirit at the beginning of this series, and now we move on to do the fruit. And the first thing that we need to realise, there, there are still quite large sections of the church uh, who either don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, for theological reasons, I mean they're wrong, but they either don't believe in them, or they believe in them because they've got no choice, but they're not very happy with them, you see. And one of the arguments that these people tend to bring up is that they say, it's not the gifts of the Spirit that are important, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And you're fine with people like these. If you ever start talking about the gifts of the Spirit, they want to throw cold water over you. They want to shut you up. And the way they do it is because they start talking about the importance of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, and the greatest of these is love. And the whole idea is to try and dampen you and make you feel guilty for having thought about the gifts of the Spirit in the first place. And you see, what they do is that they tend to paint the picture that there's a choice that we have to make either between the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, there are some Christians who don't like the, the gifts of the Spirit. No time for them, all right? And they're really into, they would say, the fruit of the Spirit. Alternatively, there are other Christians who are really into the gifts of the Spirit, but they don't seem to have much time for the fruit of the Spirit. They're not worried about how they live. They just want to get on with their tongues and healing and prophecy and stuff like that. And, and that there's a picture abroad that kind of you pays your money and you take your choice. That it's either the gifts of the Spirit or it's the fruit of the Spirit. Now tonight we're going to see that that is a choice that doesn't have to be made. It's an absolutely crazy choice. You see, this thing about the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible doesn't teach that it's either or. The Bible teaches very, very clearly it's both and. And this is vitally important. You see, if, if I was to have to make a choice, I mean, say we were forced. Say Jesus came here tonight and he said, right, right lads, choose. You can have the gifts of the Spirit, or you can have the fruit of the Spirit, but you can't have both. Which one would you choose? I know what I'd go for. I'd go for the fruit of the Spirit. There's no question of that in my mind. But praise God, we do not have to make that choice. And in fact, one of the reasons that you can't is that we saw while we were studying the gifts that the gifts are there for service. The fruit of the Spirit is all to do with character, all to do with love. 
And these people who say, we want the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't want the gifts of the Spirit, well, my question to them is, how are you going to love people properly without the gifts of the Spirit? Can you see? Because if we're going to serve people, we must serve them in every way. And if you're going to love people fully, that means you're going to meet the needs that can only be met through the gifts of the Spirit. Can you see how ridiculous it is when people try and, you know, talk about making a choice between the two? They are both compulsory. The Bible is quite clear about that. They are commandments. There's no choice to make. We're supposed to be moving in both. Think of it like a train, all right? A train runs on two railway tracks, doesn't it? Take one away, and you've got a train crash. And if you decide between one or the other, if you say, right, I want the fruits, but I'm not interested in the gifts, well, that's not going to get you very far as well, uh, at all. But if you're one of these people who says, right, I really want the gifts, but I'm not interested in fruit and character, then quite equally, you're going to end up with a disaster. A bird flies on the power of two wings. Do you know what happens to one-winged birds? <laughs> Bang, all right? And that is what's going to happen to us. What on earth is happening behind me? Oh, the <laughs> something is falling to bits behind me. Never mind. <coughs> My glasses. Oh, that's all right. I'll, I'll just pray in a new pair next year. Um, yeah, so in actual fact, we've got to go for both. Now then, you should be in Galatians 5, which is where Paul deals with this whole subject. And we're going to go through it verse by verse and, and get an idea of what it is that he's saying. We'll start with verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what Paul is starting here, right at the beginning of his treatment of the fruit of the Spirit, is he says, look, finally, there is a personal choice involved here, moment by moment. And we're going to see that the whole thing about the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, by the end of this study, you'll understand what the fruit of the Spirit isn't, and what it really actually is. But nevertheless, we've got to see that we have a responsibility individually, moment by moment, to decide that we are going to be living in the experience of the fruit of the Spirit. Everything has been made available for us. There's no excuse. And that so much depends on the fact that we are going to decide to go with what Jesus wants, to go with the fruit of the Spirit, rather than to just all the time indulge ourselves and to just keep giving in to our <coughs> sinful nature. Go down into verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. Now, the, he, here he's talking about this inward struggle that is all the time going on between our sinful natures and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And what Paul's saying here, he says, look, there's a personal choice to be made moment by moment. Our responsibility is to choose the good. Our responsibility is to choose the right. However, all too often, we just take the line of least resistance and we go with our sinful natures. I've said here before, I'm one of those people who can stand anything except temptation, you see. So the Holy Spirit actually does something when that happens. And the moment that we take that line of least resistance, all right, the moment that we just gaily go on with what our sinful nature wants, therefore, he says that the flesh is against the Spirit and the Spirit opposes the flesh to prevent you from doing what you want to do. So the point is, yeah, we can go with sin if we want as Christians, but the Holy Spirit will be there to make it hard for you, 
Alright, so the point is, sin if you will, but you're not going to have any peace, and life is not going to be good in the slightest. So God is saying, yeah, you can go with sin if you want, I want you to go with my fruit. You can go with sin if you want, but I guarantee you, my Holy Spirit is going to be in you, fighting you every step of the way. So can you see, there's this tension inside of us all the time. The Holy Spirit is fighting against our sinful natures. Our sinful natures are kicking back, and it's up to us, moment by moment, to decide what we're going to go with. Are we going to go with the Holy Spirit and walk after the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Romans, or are we going to live after the flesh, just giving all the time to, um, you know, exactly what our sinful natures want to do? We have a new nature. The moment we were born again, a new you was created, and we can decide to live in that new us, rather than all the time just going with the old one. Verse 18, he says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, this is tremendously important, because what does Paul mean when he says that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law? In the Old Testament, this phrase, being under the law, always represents the idea that there is God's law, there is God's standard, and you've got to obey the law, and therefore, in your own strength, you try ever so, ever so hard, and try and obey the law. Now, what Paul is saying, I've said that we've got a choice to make moment by moment, each minute of our lives, and that we have got to do what's right. But what Paul is introducing here is the very important truth that that eventually doing what's right is not going to depend finally upon our efforts. If it was just a question of us saying, right, tomorrow morning I'm going to be a really good Christian from now on, and really bursting with trying hard, that would be what Paul calls being under the law. And he says, no, that's not the idea of this at all. Because what we're going to see is that in our decision to go with God, our decision to do what's right, we actually tap into a strength and a power that isn't our own. We must understand this. We cannot bring forth from ourselves the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that very, very powerfully. But by an act of the will to go with what's right, we can tap into that fruit and God will provide the power that we don't have of ourselves. Verse 19, this will become clearer. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Now Paul is going to outline what's going to happen if you put yourself under the law. This is what's going to happen as long as it depends on us, alright? The works of the flesh are plain. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that long list there, <coughs> that's us. That is us. That is what we naturally are. That is the best that we can pull out of ourselves, that horrendous list of sin. No, Paul's not saying here that this is down to us to do. That is what we are like in the natural. There's no way that we can do it. And in verse, at the end of verse 21, <coughs> when he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not there talking 
about losing salvation, remember, there's a sense in which we inherit the kingdom of God after the second coming, but there's another sense in which we are inheriting the kingdom of God here and now, aren't we? According to our faithfulness to Jesus, we can actually be coming into the victory and power of his life. Well, of course, if we as Christians just carry on in the works of the flesh and carry on in sin without living in repentance, then although we're saved and we can't lose that salvation, nevertheless, we can never come in to the blessing that Jesus has for us now if we're just gaily going after sin in whatever shape or form it's in. But notice as well, that's quite interesting here, that Paul says that the works of the flesh and then he goes on to describe the fruit of the Spirit. Now can you see? You've got the works of the flesh. What you and I come up with are works, alright, in the natural. But what the Holy Spirit comes up with is fruit. Can you see? Fruit means goodness. There is no goodness in anything we produce simply by our own efforts. Right, let's actually read through now the actual fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, but. And he says but because what we're going to read now has got nothing, is completely separate from that list of sin that comes out of us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, some of you have got different translations of the Bible to me, and some of those words get translated in a different way, but fear not, because we're going to be going into the Greek of it, and that will make it clear. Now then, so here we've got nine fruits of the Holy Spirit, alright? And notice that it's not fruits of the Spirit, when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's always in the singular. There's not nine fruits, there's one fruit, but nine flavours. And what we're going to see, it's only when you've got all those flavours together in some, you know, lovely Neapolitan-type mixture, that you've actually got love. So, in a sense, what these are all the different facets of the diamond, but it's only when you've got all the facets together that you've got the completed, full end product, i.e. love. Now then, do you remember, when we were doing the gifts of the Spirit, again in 1 Corinthians 12, we saw there were nine of them, and we're dealing with nine things here. And we saw that they fell into three different groups or categories. Remember, we saw the gifts of the Spirit fell into thought, word, and deed, which shouldn't surprise us, because that is our experience, and the gifts of the Spirit have been tailored for our experience. In precisely the same way, we're going to see now that the fruit of the Spirit also fall into three very, very natural and logical categories. And what we're going to see is that three of them di uh, relate directly to our own subjective experience. And we're going to see that that subjective experience is in relation to God himself. Then we're going to see that the next three are to do with behaviour and that they fall into the category of being in relation to other people around us. And then the last three are to do with character, what we are of ourselves, and that that is in relation to ourselves. So we see that three are to do with God, three are to do with other people, and three are to do with ourselves. Now, do you remember last week, she'll love the Lord your God and your neighbour as yourself? Can you see that pattern keeps re-emerging? And of course it does, because we're looking at the same truth, love, from different angles. Right, let's start with the first three, alright, the trio of experience, and these are in relation to God himself. And you've got love, joy, and peace. The first three, love, 
joy and peace. What I'm calling a trio of experience in relation to God himself. And I'm saying it's a trio of subjective experience because with love, joy and peace you feel them and you experience them. They are a subjective inward state. Now obviously there's more to all these things than simply the fact that they are felt subjectively. There is more to them than that. But nevertheless, love, joy and peace have that subjective element of personal feeling in regards to it. And that what I want to show you is that these three, love, joy and peace, are primarily to do with our relationship directly with God himself. And remember, it's God who always comes first. We saw that last time. Love God and then your neighbour as yourself. And here we're seeing that relationship to God is always that which comes first. Let's go through the three of them. The first one, revision. Love, agape. All right, remember we were saying a few studies ago <coughs> that of all the different words for love that the early church could have chosen in the Greek language, and remember the Greeks, the word they used when talking about loving God was eros. Well, the Christians, they latched onto another Greek word entirely, all right, and it wasn't used very much, and they made it their own, agape. And when they wanted to describe the love of God, the Greek language had a little Greek word, very little used, tailor-made with just the right meaning. And you'll remember that we saw that the meaning of that was the fact that it's a, an outgoing, a completely altruistic love, which is only concerned for its objects. It's a love that has no regard for what it's going to get back, but is purely concerned with what it's going to to give. And we saw 1 John 4 verse 7 and 8 where John says love is of God and God is love. That when we say God is agape we are hitting the fullest description of love of God that you can have. God is totally self-giving. That is his nature. He is not in the slightest bit selfish. All he wants to do is to love and to bless others. That is all that our God wants to do. And this is the agape love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. However, in John 13 verse 34, Jesus said this to the disciples, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you shall love one another. Now that wasn't a new commandment, that was in the Old Testament. Nothing new about that, that you should love your neighbour, that was as old as the, old as the hills. But here Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. And it was new because he said that you love one another as I have loved you. That is agape, the same word. And that what Jesus is saying here <coughs> is that we as Christians are meant to be entering into the experience of loving each other and those around us, unbelievers in the world as well, loving those around us with precisely the same love that Jesus has for us. We looked at Romans 5.5 5 as well, that uh, Paul said the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now can you see here we're dealing with the fruits of the Spirit. And this first one, love, being in relation to God, because it is of course God's love, it's him, God's love himself. It's not that this is something that we've got to respond to God, we've got to love him. This is actually coming into the experience of sharing God's very own love. All right. Therefore, what we're seeing here is that the love that God has in his heart for us, he wants that same love, 
to be shed abroad in our hearts so that we are loving each other in the same way that Jesus loves us. And we saw as well that the Hebrew equivalent word used in the Old Testament for love was chesed. And that means a spontaneous feeling which impels to self-giving. It's a feeling of love which means you've got to do something to show your love to that person. So again, can you see there's the element of subjective experience here. There is love. But secondly, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Now the Greek word here is kara. And it means gladness. It means rejoicing in the sense of rejoicing. Can you see? It's thanksgiving because one is absolutely glad, absolutely thrilled. And the point about the joy here <coughs> in the Christian life is that it's a joy that is independent from circumstances. I mean, the world feels joy, doesn't it? I mean, you know, there's no question about that. There are really lovely, super-duper-duper things that happen, and you might really feel joy. That isn't invalid, but that isn't the joy that we're talking about here. That is a joy that is sparked off because something you want has happened, all right? Nothing wrong with that, but that is not Christian joy in the full sense of the word. Christian joy is absolutely independent of circumstances. Whether things are going your way or not, Christian joy is there because it's a joy, not in circumstances, but it's a joy in God himself. And because God is unchanging, because God is always the same, to have a joy that is in God is to have a joy that you can never lose. Because a joy in God could only be lost if God somehow became less than God, and he never would. He will always be the same. So therefore, if we experience joy in nice things that happen in life, and that's fair enough, that joy is transitory. It can't last because life isn't nice all the time. But a joy that's in God is abiding because God himself never ever changes. And Korah at rock bottom means to be pleased. That really is what the word means, to be pleased. <coughs> and the question is, however bad our situation might be, I mean some of you might be in really good situations and terrific, good luck to you, well, wish I was, no, no I am really, no, some of you might be having a super duper time, everything going right, I see Kirsty beaming away, husband just being promoted, and that's fantastic, you see, but whether your circumstances are good or whether at the moment, you know, life isn't so marvellous, the question is, regardless of that, are we pleased that God loves us? Are we thrilled that God loves us? Because, <coughs> now, let's say tomorrow morning you get a cheque through the post, all right, or, or, or you get a letter from the football pools, and they say, you've won £100,000. Now, I'll bet you, you, you go to work rejoicing, wouldn't you, okay? And that would be absolutely terrific, all right? But, say the next morning you wake up and there's a letter, oh, sorry, it's all been a mistake. <laughs> you see? You wouldn't be rejoicing, would you? But... If, if, if you were just truly thrilled in God, pleased that he loves you, pleased that he saved you, then the point is that whereas there'd be a bit of rejoicing that there wouldn't be normally if you won the pools, the point is that would neither add nor detract to the joy in our hearts just that we are in relationship to God himself. And of course the final reason that this is a joy that is independent from circumstances is quite simply this. We've already seen that agape isn't our love, that is the love of God. And in Nehemiah, chapter 8 and verse 10, he says something to some people who weren't in a very good situation at all. In fact, they were in a very, very bad situation. And he said to them, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, can you see? 
If you're happy because you've won the pools, and so would I be, that's human joy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the joy that we're speaking about here, Kara, it's not our joy, it's the joy of the Lord himself. And if there's one thing that the Lord always is, he is always <coughs> joyful. Now, obviously, he feels pain. He shares our pain. Of course he does. But nevertheless, God's fundamental at heart, he is joyful. That's terrific, because he's in absolute you know, right relationship with himself, and he's in right relationship with everybody else. God is primarily happy. And that's how we know that he wants us to be happy. I mean, he can share in our unhappiness, but, but, but God is a happy person. That's terrific. And that's why Christians are meant to be happy. I'm not talking about, you know, going around with a sickly Jesus grin on your bush. You know, I'm not talking about that kind. But can you see a contentment in life which is absolutely immovable because you're sharing the very joy of the Lord himself. Right, love, joy. Thirdly, peace. Peace. Irene, that's the Greek word, Irene, and, and it's the Greek word that we get the name Irene from. That's what, you know, the English name Irene means. It means peace. And uh, Irene is, what it, what it communicates in the Greek is a confident immovability against all the odds. It is a, a happy, contented steadfastness that nothing can change. Now then, I want to say <coughs> that there's, for everything that God does, there's a counterfeit. It's the same with the gifts of the Spirit, but it's also true for the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And that you can meet many, many people, uh, say in sectarian movements, or even atheists, who seem to be very, very at peace, and they are experiencing a counterfeit peace. Uh, I spent an afternoon in the back of a van, uh, sort of travelling from the Midlands down to London once, with a, a whole van load of moonies, you know. And the, I must say that when I got into the back of that van, because I was hitching, when I got into the back of that van with them, I have never experienced such tangible peace in my life. They had a peace you could feel. Can you see? It hit you as soon as you got in. But it was a counterfeit peace, not genuine peace in any way at all. And remember that many, many people are fairly peaceful for the simple reason that they are detached. Like, you very often find that adherence to the Eastern faiths, and we've spoken about the Eastern faiths during this series, you tend to find that they are very, very peaceful people. But remember, for Eastern faiths, it is the peace of absolute detachment. Remember, people adhere to, e to Eastern faiths don't believe they exist. They don't believe that existence is real. The only thing that there is, is the mind of God. Therefore, you and I don't exist in the slightest. We are a mental picture that God is holding in his mind. And salvation is by realising you don't exist. Now, can you see, <coughs> that is the peace of utter detachment, and it's satanic. Because finally, it's a peace engendered in people who are beyond caring. Can you see, for the Eastern faiths, suffering doesn't matter because it's not really happening. Can you see? And that is a terrible peace. But sometimes, you meet Christians who are tremendously at peace. And I have met Christians who are tremendously at peace because they're quite frankly not troubling themselves with serving the Lord. They're quite frankly not troubling themselves with anybody else's problems. They're fine, I'm all right, Jack, pull the ladder up, praise the Lord. You know, they, they say, praise the Lord, but what they mean is, pull the ladder up. And they're at peace. They haven't got any problems because they're not prepared to get their hands dirty. You know, they're just getting on with their life, no problem at all. Remember, there is peace in a graveyard. And can you see that we use the word peace and it covers different meanings? 
And we've got to sift out the right meaning from the wrong meaning. There's peace in a graveyard, but that is not the peace that Jesus has called us to. Have you noticed that in the Christian church, by and large today, they've got the 11th commandment, thou shalt not upset anybody. And the reason that that is the 11th commandment, all right, is because the thing that matters to the most is peace. It's the status quo. Why? Well, I've told you there's peace in the graveyard. Can you see? They don't want the deathly order to be disrupted by life. They've got the status quo. They don't want any changes. So we've got to understand that the peace that we're talking about now is not spending your Christian life on a kind of a, a fuzzy high with a silly grin on your face, you know, sort of saying, oh, isn't life marvellous? I, you know, of course, now I'm a Christian, I don't have any problems. I mean, I'm not talking about that kind of peace in the slices. The Christian who really is following the world is in intense conflict on three levels. He's in conflict with the world out there. The spirit of the age, the evil world, and its way of thinking. Conflict number one. Conflict number two, he's got Satan banging on his door the whole time. Although there are many Christians who don't, I will start worrying when he's not banging on my door. All right. I will worry when everything is going. I, I will worry when I'm popular as a Bible teacher. Then, then I will worry. But can you see? There's conflict with the devil. But also, we've already seen it. Verse 17, there's conflict within ourselves because we're struggling with the power of our own sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about Christian <coughs> peace, we are not talking about freedom from conflict. We are not talking about everything in the garden being rosy in any way at all. And in fact, the Greek word for peace, irene, comes from another Greek word, aero. Think barbels. No, not that one. All right, a completely different aero. And it means to join, to join. By the way, there's another Greek word, aero, that is spelt differently. It's not that one. That means to be taken up, all right? But this one, it means to join. And that what you've got in the, the fundamental meaning of the Greek word irene is an inner wholeness and togetherness in the midst of conflict. So that what you've got is that someone in the midst of all kinds of conflict, the world, the flesh and the devil and whatever's going on, struggling not only with their own problems but with the problems of other people because they love their brothers and sisters. Can you see? They're not just struggling with their own problems, they're taking on board other people's problems as well. But the point is, in the midst of all that struggling, they inside are whole. They are together. It's like we use that phrase, you know, sort of, hey, you know, this is really together, man, you know, and, or, or we say, pull yourself together. It's a completeness, a stability inside of you in the midst of the battle, so that all the conflict is raging around, and with that conflict, all the feelings. It's quite possible to feel at peace and feel terrible. It is quite possible to feel at peace and feel terrible. I'll tell you how we know that. Jesus never, ever lost his peace, but look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you see? He was facing the feelings of utter terror and despair. But nevertheless, inside, he was together. He was at peace inside. Now, can you see this is the peace that we are called to in the Christian life? And the root of it is quite simply this. The root of it is that we are at peace with God. And think about it. If you are right with God... I'm not talking about in the sense of being born again and, you know, therefore covered in the blood of Jesus, but I'm talking about relationship-wise, in a day-to-day -day sense. <coughs> if you are, at this moment, fully at peace with God, if you can look God in the eye, then what is there to worry about? 
Can you see what I mean? That is peace, isn't it? And also, the beautiful thing is that if you can look God in the eye, that means also there's not a man, woman or child on this planet that you can't look in the eye as well. Now that is peace and that is confidence. Can you see? To be absolutely at peace with God, absolutely at peace with your brothers and sisters and your fellow man, they might not be at peace with you. Many, many people were not at peace with Jesus, but Jesus was at peace with absolutely everybody. Can you see? Now that's the stability that comes. That is Christian peace. Where it doesn't matter what you go through, you inside are at peace. So that you may be experiencing intense despair on the level of feelings. There are two things that can happen to you. Um, I think all Christians experience very, very bad feelings at times, alright? But there are two responses. You can have Christian A who is immersed in feelings of despair or terror and they're crumbling, alright? But you can have Christian B who's learned the secret. He too, or she too, is experiencing intense feelings of despair or terror, but they're at peace with God. Can you see? Because they are saying, I know what these feelings are, they feel terrible, but these feelings are not the last word on the matter. The last word on the matter is that God has got me in his hands. Can you see? That is the basis of peace. No matter what you're going through, you know that God is there, you know that everything is going to work together for your good. Now that is the peace that is the fruit of the Spirit that Jesus wants us to be experiencing. But again, is this, some, is this an attribute that human beings have? No, it's not. John 14, verse 27, listen to what Jesus says. He said to the disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Can you see? Again, we're not talking about something that we have, or something that we can pull out of ourselves, like a, you know, a bunny rabbit out of the magician's hat. This isn't something you hook out of your own heart. This is purely the attributes of the Lord himself. But, by remaining close to him, we can be sharing in those attributes of his with him. So there are the first three. A, 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 a threesome of subjective experience, but which are all in relation to God himself. The root of those ones is our relationship with the Lord. Okay, let's move on to the second threesome now. And these, you're going to see, are a threesome of behaviour. And we're going to see that these relate, not so much to God, but they relate to other people. Think about it. Patience, kindness and goodness. They're the next three. Now, patience, kindness and goodness, that is how you act towards other people. Can you see? They're behaviour. They're not feelings. These are behaviour. They are the way you treat other people people all right right let's do the first one all right the first of these three patience or in some of your versions it will have long suffering all right but the greek word and we saw this a few studies ago when we did 1 corinthians 13 macrothumia all right and you will of course remember that this comes from two greek words won't you it comes from macros which means long all right and it comes from thumos which means temper Dear, oh dear, does anyone listen to me ever? Goodness, oh, ah. Right, macros, which means long, and thumos, which means temper, and it means long-tempered or good-tempered. And uh, remember when we looked at that, we, uh, in Psalm 136, it's a beautiful psalm, every other verse of that psalm is the same thing. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All right? Now, that is the patience, that is the long-suffering of the Lord, macrothumia. He is patient with us. 
And isn't it just as well that he is patient with us? I mean, can you, I mean, we all experience with each other that sometimes maybe things are going badly and then someone comes along and maybe does something that isn't really that irritable, but it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, isn't it? So suddenly you can do something in someone's presence and whoosh, up the wall they go because it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Their patience with life has run out. Now, can you see how important it is that God is patient? Because wouldn't it have been dreadful if the day that you got converted, you'd been the straw that broke the camel's back? Can you see? Wouldn't that be awful? And of course, God is patient. His, his temper, in that sense, never runs out. I mean, he knows when to discipline us and to sort us out, but there'll never be the time when you approach God and you find him in the middle of a screaming fit with you, all right? He will be there to listen to you and to love you and to do whatever it is that you need doing. So there. Therefore, if God is patient, macrothumia, with us, can you see that that patience has got to be reflected out to each other? We mustn't be impatient with each other. Can you see? We've got to just be that little bit, you know, uh, more forgiving. You know, can you see, not, oh, him again, you know, or, or her again, or, or something like that. You know, this attitude of patience towards each other. Right, the second one, kindness, or in some versions, gentleness, which is confusing, because we're going to do gentleness further down the list. S you know, sadly, Bible translations aren't always brilliant. But in the RSV, it's kindness. And the Greek word is krestotes. And it means gracious, or big-hearted. You know, it's the idea of it, you know big-hearted, uh, kind uh, to anyone and everyone who comes along. And one of the things that, that strikes you most about Jesus is how kind he is. I mean, the kindness of God. Think of all the things he's done for us, not least of all actually dying for us, but all the things he's done for us that are such a blessing to us, but he doesn't have to do them. I mean, sometimes people do you kindnesses because they have to. It's sickening, isn't it? You know, and you feel, I think, look, I know you don't want to do this for me. Stop smiling at me. You know, I mean, in the Psalms, it's, it's sort of David mentioned at one point about some people, and he said their speech, speech was smooth as butter, but war was in their hearts, you know. And sometimes you get a kindness done to you by somebody, and you know they can't stand you. You know, but they're doing it because it's required of them. Well, the point is, all the kindness that God has showered upon us, he didn't have to do any of it. There's no compunction on God to do anything at all. God is God. He can do exactly what he likes. But he wanted to be kind to the creation that he had brought into being. Also, this Christotis, it, 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 it's got another idea of being easy to get along with. This is, you know, the other aspect. Not just being like a nice guy, you know, in that sense, but also someone who's easy to get along with. And of course, that's another thing with Jesus. He is very easy to get along with. He's the easiest person in the world to get along with. Of course he is. Because the only thing that makes you and I hard to get on with sometimes is our sinfulness. And the Lord isn't sinful. Therefore, he is very easy to get on with. <coughs> Jesus doesn't have relationship problems. Jesus doesn't have relationship hang-ups. Now, all of us, to a certain extent, I mean, some people are much better at relating to others and forming relationships than others, all right? I mean, some people are very bad at it. They have a real, what you would call, problem with, you know, relating to people. But all of us, even those who you'd say they're good at it, all of us, in some way, 
have failures when it comes to forming relationships with other people because to whatever extent we have relationship problems now God does not have relationship problems in the slightest therefore when it comes to him he's as easy as anything to get on with and you will never find that there's a time when you sort of like come to father in prayer and you find that he's kind of got the ump with you or he's not talking to you or or something like that or that he's he's, he's kind of sulking because you know he he told you to do something last week and you haven't done it so he's you know he's sort of like sitting behind the throne having a sulk or something and not talking no can you see god isn't like that he's not chagrined he, even when we don't obey him if you disobey god he won't let you get away with it but you see the point is if we don't get our own way with somebody the reason we push it is because our nose is put out of joint isn't it but when god doesn't get his way with us he keeps going not because his nose is out of joint but because he knows that until we have obeyed him we can never be truly happy so again can you see the fruit of the spirit crestotes graciousness big-heartedness easy to get along with and then the third one goodness agathosune i like that agathosune now <coughs> this greek word it's akin to kindness but it's more active and what you've got is that we've done kindness and now we're doing goodness you are kind to people but you do good to them can you see goodness is more active in specific instances all right uh, again psalm 136 give thanks to the lord for he is good all right and then in acts 10 verse 38 when uh, the early church was preaching about jesus they said at one point he went about doing good can you see you are kind but you do good agathosome and that what you've got here in goodness is you've got that that which is good in its character is therefore beneficial in its effects so that kindness is a settled motive it's a state of the heart it's a desire to only be pleasing that is kindness but goodness comes into play when you actually have a chance to be kind can you see so kindness is the motive goodness are the specific acts that come out of that goodness and so what you've got here is with the Lord being good he's kind yes but he is always looking for the chance to do good wherever he can now therefore what's that going to mean for us remember these three patience kindness and goodness this is to do with how we relate to other people this is how God relates to us and this is how we have to relate to other people always looking for the chance to do good because we are kind can you see what I mean the motive in the heart is that of kindness but you see also <coughs> this Greek word agathosune goodness it also includes what you'd call the sterner qualities involved when doing good is not always gentleness what do I mean by that Jesus denounced the Pharisees in no uncertain terms Jesus could be very 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 tough when he wanted to be but when he was being tough he was not being unkind and he was not being not good alright because Agatha Sume includes this when sternness is the order of the day cleansing the temple Jesus drove them out he made himself a whip of cords and he threw them out physically from the temple now then, in doing that, Jesus was doing good. 
It might not be, you know, what most Christians think of being good. I mean, if you went and did that in Westminster Abbey, and I have been tempted, I can tell you. No, you probably find that most Christians would look on and say, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? Well, if Jesus did it, and I think he would, all right, if he was around physically, if Jesus did it, they'd have to say the same about him. Can you see? No, there's a time when doing good is actually quite a stern thing. And indeed, we talk about times when you have to be cruel to be kind, don't we? When you need to be tough to get the point across. Well, goodness includes that quality. It's not all necessary lovey-dovey, although it is that as well, but it's not only that. When sterner measures are required, it includes them. Right, let's move on to the last three. <clears throat> and these three are character, all right? We've seen subjective experience in relation to God, love, joy, peace. We've seen behaviour in relation to other people, patience, kindness and goodness. But the last three are tied up with character. Character. And in fact, these are in relationship to ourselves. This is me as I am in myself, as it were. Think of it, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. They are things that you are in yourself. They are, if you like, character traits. Can you see? So then, let's go through it one by one. <coughs> the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Now, in some versions, it just have, has faith, all right? In mine, it's got faithfulness, no problem. The Greek word is pistis, and it simply means trust or trustworthiness, all right? Now, there are three aspects to its meaning. Firstly, you've got just the idea of trust, all right? Uh you might say, full of faith in the Lord. All right? In the sense that we trust God, we have faith in his word and in his promises. So in that sense, think of faithfulness as faithfulness. You can see, full of faith. There's the first meaning, that absolute trust and faith in God's word and his promises. It means not being a doubting person, all right? Um, or being double-minded. Uh, just go to James, the epistle of James. Chapter 1. And start from verse 5. <clears throat> if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproaching, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, will receive anything from the Lord. Notice two things. Firstly, double-minded people, I mean Christians who, they trust the Lord today, but tomorrow they don't. And then the day after they do, and then the day after they don't. All right. Firstly, the Bible says that such a person is by is certainly unstable. Not he might be, they will be a desperately unstable person. See it again. For that person must not suppose that a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. The Bible assumes that if you're double-minded in your faith, you're going to be unstable. And you see, the thing is, if you're believing God's word, you're going to act differently than you would if you didn't believe God's word. Therefore, if you wake up tomorrow and you're trusting God, you're going to act in such a way as befits someone who's trusting God. But if you wake up the day after and you're not trusting God, you're not going to act like someone who trusts God, you'll be acting totally different. And then if the next day you do trust God, you'll be acting different again. Can you see? And you've got this incredible instability. Um, I mean, he talks about it, uh, a wave of the sea driven and tossed, you know, by the wind at the mercy of whatever circumstances you're going through. So that's the first thing, double-mindedness when it comes to faith. If you're not settled 
in your faith, then there's going to be instability. But secondly, that person will not receive anything from the Lord. Well, why won't they? Because according to your faith be it unto you. So can you see this aspect of faithfulness or this settled trust in the word of God in the sense of, of right deep down where it counts there's this attitude of trusting God that he has got everything in control that everything that the Bible says is true and that all the promises in it are going to work out a complete and settled trust in God that makes for stability alright so that's the first alright the second aspect of faithfulness is slightly different and it's faithfulness as in fidelity alright you talk about a faithful wife or a faithful husband so in regards to marriage a good husband is faithful a bad husband is unfaithful vice versa with the wife as well now in that sense faithfulness here means loyalty alright so we've seen firstly a settled trust in the Lord but now we're seeing an absolute fidelity, an absolute loyalty to the Lord, which means in turn everything which is right, which means in turn an absolute loyalty to those who are around us. Not a loyalty that supports people when they're wrong. We're not talking about you know a blind you know the blind leading the blind, but a loyalty that sticks in with people no matter what, as long as there is a hope of them actually coming through the problem or whatever it is so there's the second thing and then thirdly the thing about faithfulness and this stems from the first one about a settled trust in the Lord is that we speak about people being faithful in the sense of utterly reliable alright there are two types of people walking this earth and sadly there are two types of Christians walking this earth there are people who are reliable and there are people who are unreliable there are people that if they say, I'll be there, they will be there. And only that which they cannot possibly overcome will stop them from being there. But if they realise they can't be there, they will tell you that they won't be there. Can you see? There's the other type of person whose actions bear no correlation whatsoever to what they tell you they're going to do. Can you see? Now, in relationships, all right, unreliable people cannot experience deep relationships because no one knows where they stand with them when you know people who say one thing and then they don't do what they've said if you can't trust people in day-to-day -day arrangements of life you know even the sense of if they say oh yeah I'll do that for you and three years later they still haven't done it if you've got friends like that if they're not reliable on that level, if you can't trust them on the practical level, no way you're going to trust them with your problems. Can you see? No way are you going to confide in them. Can you see how important this aspect of faithfulness in the fruit of the Spirit is? Being a reliable person. And being a reliable person is tied up with being a stable person with settled trust in the Lord. If you look at unreliable people, you know, some people are notoriously unreliable. I mean, everyone who knows them say, well, look, you know, best intentions. But don't take the blindest bit of notice when they say they're going to do something, because they won't do it. They'll, they'll just go home and forget about it, all right? Those people are always unstable, aren't they? These are two things that go together. 
<clears throat> again, it's why you can't have deep relationships. You cannot be the type of person to be involved in relationships. You cannot be the type of person that people can really feel they, that they're safe with or can trust if you're unstable or in any way unreliable. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's been said, hasn't it, that an Englishman's word is his bond. I mean, sort of, that is the traditional reliability of the British. I mean, whether or not it's in any way true, I wouldn't like to say. It might have been, you know, sort of like during the Raj and things like that. I can't say that the British people have struck me as being like that, you know, sort of in, in my short life in any way at all. But it's certainly true that the Christian's word should be his bond. Can you see? If we speak, that binds us. Think how easily you say, oh, yes, I'll be praying for you. How many times have you said that? Maybe to end the discussion, because you want to go home. Oh, well, I'll be praying for you. I'm guilty of it. How easily we say things like that. We shouldn't. If you say you're going to pray for someone, make sure you're going to pray for them before you say it. If you're not going to pray for them, don't tell them you're going to pray for them. But can you see, whether it's praying for people or whatever, our word should be our bond. Also, and this is tied up, it means that we should be totally honest. You see what I mean? So if somebody gives you, all right, you know, £10,528 to look after for a few weeks, a few weeks later they will get £10,528 back. They won't get you know, £10,518.73 back. Can you, know, can you see? Total honesty in every possible way, all right? We talk about, in the Bible, you've got the parable of the faithful steward, alright? Can you see? A steward who his master knew could be trusted with everything that he left him to do. So can you see, in regards to that, first of all, faithfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, to do with the type of person we actually are. Now, secondly, gentleness. In some Bibles, meekness. Am I right? I think in the King James Version, it has meekness. And uh, the Greek word here is prautes. And it's the same word that in the Beatitudes, you've got blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Exactly the same word. <coughs> now, in the Christian faith, Meekness is one of the words that has been totally misunderstood, alright? It's ended up with a picture hung on it that is totally not true about it. And the Greek word proutis for meekness, or gentleness as it's got in the RSV, is controlled strength. That's what the word means, controlled strength. Meekness does not in the slightest imply weakness of character. I mean, the traditional uh, sort of artistic images of Jesus down the ages, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and in kind of like the religious paintings of him, you know, you sort of tend to find him standing there, and his hands are always in a pose as if he's waiting for his nail varnish to dry, aren't they? And, and this real picture of Jesus being a thoroughgoing drip, and that Christians are supposed to be wimps. I mean, you ask the world what they expect Christians to be, they expect Christians to be wimps. And the reason they expect that isn't because they've read the Bible and come to that conclusion, because the world hasn't read the Bible. The only Bible the world reads is us. I'll tell you why the world expects us to be wimps. Because we have been wimps. Christianity has been traditionally wimpish. Why is it on sitcoms the vicar is always a burke? Why is that? I'll tell you. The average vicar is, and I'm not joking. The average vicar, historically, in this country, has been that. Good for a chat over cucumber sandwiches. 
can you see? That stereotype of the Christian in our society, yeah, sure, it's come from the devil, the devil loves it, but he's hung it on actually what Christians have been. And I mean, one of the incredible things that you see in 20th century Christianity in this country is the way that the Bible, which takes it for granted that the menfolk are going to be the leaders, the protectors, out there taking the knocks, all right? In this country, Christian men are more wimpish than their wives. And I think if you're, if you're going to be honest, you've got to admit that that's true. Christian men are wimpy. I mean, the Bible says that women shouldn't be in Bible teaching ministries, leaders of churches, etc., etc. That is absolutely true. But one of the reasons that so many women are doing that, even though the Bible says they shouldn't, is because the men folks sat around wimping around together. And so the women said, well, look, someone's got to do something around here. If the men aren't going, so I'm going to. Now, can you see, that is the picture that has come from meekness. This, you know, meek and mild, harmless, you know, sort of lie down, please trample me into the ground. It doesn't matter, I'm a Christian, I'll love you anyway. Now, that is not in the slightest the picture that the Bible gives us. And this Greek word, proutis, one of its uses would be for the condition of a broken-in stallion. Uh, you know, come with me in your minds to the Wild West, you know, Morsey on down the corral, you know. And it's like, you remember, they had the sort of like the ranches and they made their sort of business selling horses. That was how they, they made their money, some of them. And then what they do is they go out onto the prairies and the plains where you had the wild horses. And then what they do is they, they catch them, you know, they just chase after them on other horses, by the way. This wasn't on foot, this was on other horses. And they catch them and they take them back to the corral and then they'd have to break them in. And the way... The way they did this was that they had to, you know, ride on them. So you had one cowboy, he jumped on the back, and of course the stallion would do everything he could to, to get that rider off its back, all right? Now what happened was that if the cowboy who's breaking them in, that horse in, if he can stay on that horse's back long enough, there comes a point where suddenly the horse stops kicking, stops trying to get that rider off its back, and suddenly instantly it goes completely tame it no longer rebels against the person on the back. And from that point onwards, that stallion is broken in. It's as majestic and as strong as it ever was, but now it is subject to its rider, its master, who has broken it in. And a most extraordinary relationship develops between the broken in horse and the person who actually broke the horse in. Now that is literally the meaning of the Greek word <clears throat> for meekness. And can you see that is precisely what God wants to do to us. He kind of jumps on our back and we're kind of bucking around trying to get God, you know, there's a phrase some people use, oh, get off me back. You know, if someone's making demands of you and you don't want to meet them, it's, oh, get off me back, you see. Well, God gets on our back and he rides us until we give in. At that point of brokenness, we're still us, he's still him, but now everything we are, who we are, is submitted to Jesus and he is in charge. Now that is the meaning of the Greek word for meekness. Controlled strength. It doesn't mean that we're wimps, but what it means is we will never fight except it be worth fighting for, which means this. We won't fight for ourselves, but we'll fight for others. Can you see? We won't demand justice for me but we will demand justice for other people who aren't getting justice. Can you see? A Christian who really has the heart of God will be someone 
who has injustice done to him and he won't make too much of a thing about it. But if he sees injustice done to somebody else, you will not hear the end of it until that person who's being oppressed has received justice. Can you see? That's the Christian. And that is exactly what God is like. Jesus was exactly like that. When it came to him being oppressed, he didn't resist it. When it came to him being treated badly, he didn't resist it. He took it. Because in dying for us, he knew he was going to set us free. But look at Jesus' words, and indeed the prophetic words throughout the whole Bible, of what God thinks about injustice. I mean, you read the prophet Amos. Amos brought God's word to Israel, God's people, at a time when Israel were orthodox. It wasn't a time of idolatry. It was a time of orthodoxy. They were saying all the right prayers, singing all the right choruses, reading all the right books, stuff like that. Probably had all the, all the right sort of visiting, you know, sort of speakers. And Amos, well, God through Amos told them, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. He says, to the sound of your singing, I'll not listen. God is saying, look, keep your services. Not interested. Not interested. I hate it. I don't want to listen to you lot praying and singing. And the reason was they weren't right with him. It was sheer hypocrisy. And what God said, but let righteousness flow down like water and justice like an ever-flowing stream. Because there wasn't justice amongst his people. God hates justice. And meekness will fight injustice when it isn't being incurred itself. Can you see that difference? So Christians aren't wimps in any way at all. We will fight for the rights of other people. But the individual Christian will not fight for his own rights. There is meekness, quite a different picture, you know, to the one that is currently held uh, by most people. But also this word, the proud haze, it infers adaptability and flexibility. That's the other aspect of its meaning. A Christian who really has the heart of God will be flexible. I.e., as Christians, we do not make up our minds that this is how it's going to be done and nothing's going to budge us. Now, obviously, <coughs> we stick to what the Bible says, yes. But inflexibility is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Because if there's one thing that God wants us to be doing, it's changing. God wants to be changing us all the time. And true meekness is has a pliability, rather like again in the Old Testament, the picture of the potter and the clay. The clay was meek, because the clay allowed the potter to mould it in whatever way he wanted to. And uh, if you want an opposite to Proutes, the opposite of meekness is stubbornness, in fact. Alright? You know, we say, no, not changing, this is how I'm going to be. Alright? Meekness is a flexibility to God's will. Alright? But it's not weakness, it's a strength that is controlled and only uses its strength in a situation where it is right to do so. Right, so there's meekness or gentleness. And then finally, self-control, or in some versions, temperance. Do you remember the temperance seven? It's terrible, I do. I can remember seeing them on television, which is really frightening, isn't it? Anyway, self-control or temperance, encrotain. And that comes from kratos, which means strength. All right? Kind of a, you know... Not too different from Proutes. Uh, but this specifically means the strength of discipline in athletic training. One of the pictures that Paul uses in the New Testament quite a lot is the athlete. You know, sort of straining away to get the prize. You know, training and, you know, 
and sort of like saying I'm, I'm not going to get involved in anything except my training. And that's what this word means. It's the idea that you keep going for the prize. Nothing is going to distract you from the main purpose. And what is the main purpose? It's to love God and it is to love those around us. <clears throat> what you've got is the control of your will and your body under the Spirit of God. All right? You know, so that, for instance, I mean, say you go through a lethargic time. I mean, sometimes our bodies get lethargic. Uh, you know, some people have the ability to be lethargic 11 and a half months out of a year, don't they? But the point is, we can all feel lethargic, but you say, right, I feel lethargic, but come on, there's work to be done. Can you see? Uh, I mean, it's like, for instance, I mean, there's a, I mean, I would imagine there's a time for everyone when a time comes when you genuinely are too tired to go along to the fellowship. I accept that comes to everyone eventually, all right. But there are some Christians who, you know, the sort of like the, sh the slightest yawn the night before and, oh, no, I'm not going to the fellowship tomorrow because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too tired. You know, can you see that's a lethargy that's got to be overcome? Because if, as the Bible say says, we forsake the meeting of ourselves together then we're not going to be growing in the way that we are. And there are just times, and regardless of how we feel or even how our bodies feel, we've got to say no to our bodies, we've got to say no to our feelings, and we've got to say, this is right, this is what I've got to do, I'm going to do it. It's as simple as that, a bit of, you know, sort of discipline over ourselves, all right? That is what self-control is. Right, so there are the nine elements that make up the fruits of the Spirit, and you see their relationship to God, our neighbour or other people and ourselves. But what I want you to notice now is that the Bible says that this is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is. Now I've got to go back to what I said earlier. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is not our fruit. We've already seen human beings cannot come up with fruit. They come up with works. And the works that we come up with are of the flesh, and they are sinful. Only the Holy Spirit comes up with fruit. Remember Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the same with the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, people have gifts. You get gifted musicians, don't you? Uh, you get sort of gifted writers. Now, that's got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. That, that, they are the talents that some people have. That's their gifts. But with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they're not our gifts. They're not our abilities. They are what the Holy Spirit does. So in the same way, the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. This is not a question of reading through the fruit of the Spirit and saying, all right, well, tomorrow morning I better start, you know, I'll get up and I'll start emulating Galatians 5. That is to totally misunderstand it. That would be to say, right, I'd better start getting on with this, hadn't I? And that would assume that we can produce the fruit. We can't. <coughs> Cross-reference what we've said tonight with when we did our study on 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Did you notice the similarity to this list in Galatians 5 with 1 Corinthians 13? Did you? No? Fine. Okay, well, I'm telling you, there is a similarity between this list and the list in 1 Corinthians 13. Now then, the reason is this. What did we note when we did 1 Corinthians 13, that passage about love? What did we conclude it was describing? Love is patient and kind. It was talking about Jesus. In precisely the same way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., etc., etc. Who's it describing? It's describing Jesus. Can you see that? The fruit of the Holy Spirit 
is not a standard that you and I must be struggling to try and reach, attain to. The fruit of the Spirit is a description of Jesus, just like 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of Jesus. Jesus is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't he? I mean, I think of the Sermon on the Mount. The number of Christians, they read the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, they misunderstand it, because in, in some way, you know, you have to take into account that Jesus is, you know, preaching that to Israel, all right, and he was showing them what righteousness was, as opposed to what the Pharisees at the time made of it. But nevertheless, a lot of Christians, they read through the Sermon on the Mount, and they think, this is the standard to which we must attain, and they try and live out the Sermon on the Mount. Again, it's to totally misunderstand it. The Sermon on the Mount is the New Testament equivalent to the Ten Commandments given through Moses. Now, what was the point of the Ten Commandments given through Moses? Was it so that if Israel obeyed them, they'd get there? No. The Ten Commandments was given to Israel to prove to them that they couldn't obey them. Can you see? Because they had the Ten Commandments to go for, they couldn't do it. The Ten Commandments weren't something that, is, you know, that Jews were supposed to obey. The Ten Commandments was revealing the holiness and the character of God. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is exactly the same thing. The Sermon on the Mount isn't there for you and I to wake up in the morning and say, right, well, we'll start with Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. We'll have a crack at them for six months, and then we'll move on after that until we've got the whole lot. No, the Sermon on the Mount isn't there for you and I to emulate. The Sermon on the Mount is there to describe the life of Jesus. Who was the only person who ever lived the Sermon on the Mount? It was Jesus. Because the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount was to reveal what true righteousness really was. There is only one true righteousness, and that's God himself. And you see, the trouble is that when you get in the Sermon on the Mount and some of the verses, is that what do you do when be ye perfect? Is your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, Ooh, what do you do about that? Who's the only person who's perfect? As his Heavenly Father is perfect, it's Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount was the life that Jesus lived. We cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot live out love. We cannot live out the fruit of the Spirit. But the point is this, Jesus can. And he can do it through us. Can you see what Paul's getting at in the fruit of the Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus and to reveal him. That is what the Holy Spirit is all about. The Holy Spirit wants only one thing. Whatever it takes, whatever he has to do in order to bring it about, the Holy Spirit wants people to see how wonderful Jesus is. He does it through the gifts of the Spirit, but he also does it through the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is Jesus revealing himself through us. Go to the beginning of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, and let me show you that Paul had this on his mind right at the beginning of Galatians when he eventually led up to writing about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 1 and verse 15. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me. Can you see? Paul realised that God had called him so that Jesus could be revealed in Paul. Paul understood that was the revelation of the Christian life. That's what it's all about. So Jesus can live through us. Remember what we saw in the church. The church is Jesus' home. Your home exists for you to live in. People go to your home, not to see your home, but to see you. This is the whole point of the Christian life, that people meet up with Jesus in us. And in Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. 
this is what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, Jesus revealing himself through us. Let's just finish off the verses. The second part of verse 23. Do you remember Paul said, against such there is no law? All right? So he's done the fruit of the Spirit, and when he gets to the end of it, and he says, against such there's no law. Now, have you ever scratched your head and thought, why did he say that? What are those few verses in there for? Well, I think it's like this. What Paul is saying there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. Now think about it, what effect does law have? In whatever form law comes along in, what does it do? It restricts, alright? Therefore, where there's law, there is ultimate restriction. Now then, there are some things which are restricted full stop, you must never do because they're always wrong. But there are many, many legitimate things which aren't wrong in themselves, but if you take them too <coughs> far, a law pops up against them. For instance, eating. Now, eating is a jolly fun and a jolly blessed business. It was God's idea. But there is a sin of gluttony. It is legitimate to eat. It is legitimate to enjoy eating. But if you eat too much above requirements, suddenly God's law pops up. Boom. No gluttony. Can you see? Law is always there to put a restriction on. Even things that are good and neutral of themselves, everything you can take too far, except one thing. You can't get enough of the Holy Spirit, uh, of the fruit of the Spirit. When it comes to love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, all these things, you can do them as much as you like. And God's little signpost against the law will never pop up. You can love people all you want and you'll never do it too much. There'll never come a time when God is saying, you're taking the fruit of the Spirit too far. Can you see that? That's what Paul means when he says there's no law against them. Uh, you can do it, you know, as much as you like without any restriction whatsoever. All right? And then just verse 24, and he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why does he say that? Well, I'll tell you. We've seen the fruit of the Spirit, like 1 Corinthians 13 and the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus living through us, alright? But, what does that always imply? For Jesus to live through us, we've got to be gotten out of the way. Our sinful nature has got to be dealt with. There is always death to self. And Jesus can be revealed through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, only to the extent <coughs> that we are allowing God to bring us into death to ourselves. In ending, just go to John 15. Some very famous verses, but we'll read them together now and think of them in the light of what we've said. All right. First of all, verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, most people miss the significance of that. They think, oh yes, there's Jesus, the vine, boom, over there. Here's us, the branches, boom, over here. And they think of it as if there's a divide between the vine and the branches. What Jesus is saying here, the branches are the vine. Can you see that? The branches are the vine. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are branches. What's he saying? He's saying, you and I are absolutely one. You can't look at a vine and say, oh, there's the vine, there's the branches. Because if you point to the branch, you are pointing to the vine. 
And if you see, right, I'm going to point to the vine now, how can you point to the vine without pointing to the branches? Can you see? Here is Jesus talking about our utter oneness with him, all right? And he says, he who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Bears much fruit? All oh, fruit of the Spirit, life of Jesus. He is through whom I can live. And he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing, all right? Apart from Jesus, do we come up with fruit? No, we come up with the works of the flesh, sin. But only when Jesus is living through us is the fruit, the Christian life, going to be there. Go to verse 16. <clears throat> he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What fruit? What fruit are we supposed to bear? That Jesus might be revealed through us. Can you see, when Jesus is here using the term fruit, the Bible is its own interpreter. What is this fruit? Is it getting lots of converts? No. When the Bible says you test false prophets by their fruit, it doesn't mean you test them by their results, because false prophets get terrific results. I mean, you don't look at an evangelist who gets loads and loads of people converted and say, oh, people are, people are getting converted, he's bearing fruit. That's not fruit, that's results. It's got nothing to do with it. Fruit is character. It's the life of the man that you test, not the results that he gets. And here Jesus is saying, look, I've appointed you to bear fruit. I have appointed you to be the channels through whom I can live and continue to reveal myself to this world through. Now then, let's just finish off by reading verse 12 and 14. This is my commandment. Do you remember this verse? That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, can you see, when you pull all this together, it's the life of Jesus lived through us, loving each other with the love that Jesus has for us, the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus living his life through us. Now, remember, we started this series by looking at the gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. We've had to move on and do fellowship in love, or it will be incomplete. But do you remember I was saying that if you have the gifts of the Spirit in abundance, but you don't have the love of God revealed amongst you, what you end up doing is you display God's power without God's character. And when you have Christians chucking miracles around all over the place, but their lives are not in, in a alignment with the heart of God, when you've got God's power revealed without his holiness revealed, it might as well be counterfeit, can you see? Because God doesn't just want the world to know he's powerful. He wants the world to know what sort of person he is. And that is why we must always make sure but yes, we've got to move forward in the gifts of the Spirit. Of course we have. But let us make sure that we are also moving on in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And can you see as well that it is tough, isn't it, sometimes moving out in the gifts of the Spirit? You know, you've, you've got to be free to make mistakes in front of people. You know, that can be a bit hairy sometimes. But can you see, if we as a fellowship are moving on, developing in the fruit of the Spirit as well, Jesus being more and more revealed amongst us, then can you see, in an atmosphere like that, it is totally safe to step out in the gifts of the Spirit. It's safe to make mistakes. And the only way we can learn anything in the Christian life is through mistakes. Can you see how safe it is 
when the fruit of the Holy Spirit is developing in our midst, which, remember, is just another way of saying that Jesus is being allowed to reveal himself through us more and more. When that happens, as God brings people amongst us, whether they be believers or unbelievers who are going to become believers, but whoever God brings amongst us, we want them to be seeing two things. And the reason that we want them to be seeing two things is because Jesus wants them to see these two things as well. And the two things he wants them to see are these. He wants them to see how powerful he is. And he wants them to see how wonderful he is. Show them he's wonderful without power. And that's fine, but they won't be able to believe he can help them. It's not enough in life being wonderful. You've got to have the power to carry it through. All right? So we've got to show people that God is powerful and wonderful side by side. Never one or the other, both and. The bird flies on two wings and the train runs on both parallel tracks together. Now, can you see how wonderful that will be as the Lord enables us to move more and more in that way? Right. That's it. Many thanks.